which can be found on Church Bible, page 697. The branch from Jesse. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash round his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Second reading of today is from Acts chapter 9, verse 23 to 31, which can be found on page 1103. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept a close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul, on his journey, had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how, in Damascus, he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Hilary, very much indeed. I had a eureka moment the other day. You'll remember that was the word used by the Greek scholar Archimedes, meaning I've got it, or I understand it, when he got into his bath and worked out a problem. I'd been wondering why our country was in such a poor way, both morally and spiritually. And there are a number of indications that point to this being so. The rising incidence of mental illness the breakdown of relationships and families, the unhappiness of children, and the tragic consequences of gang culture. 
And there's the apparent decline of all churches, including our own denomination. Clergy numbers are forecast to reduce by 25% in the next few years. Attendance figures continue their downward trajectory, though slightly less steeply. My eureka moment came when Simon Ponsonby spoke at the men's Bible study, Burning Man. His topic was this one, the fear of the Lord. Uh, when he commented on the lack of teaching or understanding of this vital doctrine. He also identified some serious consequences that follow this failure as a result. And so I therefore decided we needed to pay attention to this key truth in our new sermon series, Foundational Truths. And the first thing is, and it's my first point, is that the fear of the Lord appears throughout the Bible. It's not restricted to the Old Testament, as some would have you believe. Peter and Paul use that phrase, the fear of the Lord, as a motive for the way we live, holy and righteous living. So Paul, 2 Corinthians 7, since we have these promises, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Reverence is the same Greek word as fear. Peter in 1 Peter 1, 17, Live out your time here in reverent fear. Most striking of all is the messianic passage we've just had read from Isaiah 11. We have it often at carol services. Isaiah is describing the characteristics of God's Messiah, in other words, of Jesus. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might of knowledge, and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. So here's my second point. What does the phrase, the fear of the Lord, mean? The Bible uses it in two ways. The first way describes the sense of anxious dread. It's produced by the realization of God's judgment for our disobedience. So, when Adam disobeyed God, he hid from God because he was afraid. Paul's indictment of ungodly humanity and its behavior is summed up in Romans 3.18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And that is the world that we live in today. A world that believes in its arrogance that it is not accountable to God. Whereas scripture from start to finish reveals that this is a profound mistake. Now, the Christian is freed from the fear of God's eternal punishment because, in the words of the hymn writer, we have been ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. And that comes about by personally responding to and receiving for ourselves what Jesus achieved on the cross. Nevertheless, the Christian is very conscious of God's mercy and undeserved love. So we live out our daily lives, as Peter said, in reverent fear. So for the Christian who believes and trusts in Jesus, the primary meaning of the fear of God is an attitude of veneration, honor, reverence, and awe. And this comes as a result of our better understanding of God's nature, of who he is, his majesty, his holiness, his glory. Now we see something of what this means in Isaiah 6 when the angelic beings, being in God's presence, with two wings covered their faces. Even more vividly, 
when John had his vision on the island of Patmos of someone like a son of man, a title that was used by Jesus of himself, we're told in Revelation 1.17 what his reaction was. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. The revelation was so powerful, so overwhelming, that John couldn't stand. Now Simon tells us that there is a YouTube clip, I haven't looked it up, where there is the claim that God had appeared on the stage of a church. Simon said dismissively, it was just dust interacting with a light beam. But instead of responding as John did, I wonder if you know what they did. They took out their iPhones and took selfies. How pathetic, said Simon. For if God was really to appear in our presence, we too, like John, would be lying in a heap on the ground. C.S. Lewis said, I think in an understatement, the fear of the Lord leads to a certain shrinking. I love that. The fear of the Lord leads to a certain shrinking. We live in such a self-obsessed society, we think it's all about us. We take selfies and iPhones of our food. Who cares? Unless you're a food critic, I certainly don't. Whereas in fact, it's all about God, the Lord Almighty, the King of Kings, and the Sovereign over all. The fear of the Lord is part of the normal Christian life, and this little phrase appears in 300 verses in our Bibles, which underlines its significance. Now, here's my third point. A right understanding of the fear of God will cause us to worship God in the right way. Jerry Bridges has written a book, The Practice of Godliness. He has a most helpful section on this topic, and he writes this. One of the most serious sins of Christians today may well be, listen to this, the almost flippant familiarity with which we often address God in prayer. None of the godly men of the Bible ever adopted the casual manner that we often do. They always address God with reverence. And then Bridges contrasts two passages in Hebrews. Chapter 10, verse 19, wonderfully reminds us that we have confidence to enter the most holy place, that is, into God's presence, by the blood of Jesus, through what Jesus did on the cross. But later, in chapter 12, the writer to the Hebrews declares, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The saints in heaven, Revelation 15, sing a song of triumph. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord? And so if we pay attention to what God is really like, we will avoid flippant familiarity. The children of Israel had a new sense of God's power when the Egyptian forces were overwhelmed. The people, were told in Exodus 14, feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses. Chapter 15, they sing a song of gratitude and worship. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? 
Now today, it is right that we know about the love of God. But we focus on it almost to the exclusion, the total exclusion of the fear of God. If we fail to honor God as he really is, our worship may degenerate, will degenerate, to flippant familiarity. And that reveals our woeful ignorance of who God is. So to fear God will help us worship him in the right way. Here's my fourth point, and help us to live in the right way. John Murray pointed out the connection between the two. What or whom we worship determines our behavior. What or whom we worship determines our behavior. If we understand God's character, that will produce a sense of reverence and a desire to behave in such a way that pleases God. For our behavior demonstrates what our attitude to God is. So Deuteronomy 6, you shall fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands. I was amused to be told the other day, the Ten Commandments, they're just the Old Testament, aren't they? Wow. No. And Leviticus 19 contains the laws and regulations for God's people to follow while they're in the promised land. And in case we think it has no relevance to us, we should note how Jesus referred to it. For from it, this chapter, this one chapter, Jesus quoted the second commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's in Leviticus 19. And the phrase, I am the Lord, I am the Lord your God, appears 16 times in this one chapter. And Bridges helpfully explains the implication of this repetition. Through this frequent repetition of his sacred name, God reminds the people of Israel that their obedience to his laws is to flow out of a reverence and a fear of him. And if we have a flawed understanding of God's character and nature, we will have a flawed understanding of ourselves. We put ourselves at the center of the picture rather than God. Simon Ponsonby told a delightful story about somebody called Marilyn Adams. She's professor of philosophy at Yale, formerly Regis Professor in Oxford. And apparently she would say this almost childlike but really truthful prayer. Here it is. God, you are really, really, really big. And we are really, really, really small. So we've considered, firstly, the fact that the phrase, the fear of the Lord, appears throughout the Bible. Secondly, that its primary meaning is of reverence towards God. Thirdly, that a right understanding ensures correct worship. And fourthly, correct behavior. So... What are the consequences of a failure to understand the fear of God? What are the consequences? And I've taken these points from Simon Ponsonby. I think they're brilliant and so helpful. Here's the first one. We trivialize evangelism. We trivialize evangelism. So Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, since we know what it is 
to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. What is it that we're trying to persuade them about? Verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Many years ago, I visited a friend who was uh, the vicar of the church, and he pointed after the service over coffee to two women, each keeping their distance from each other. Those two are sisters, he said. They had a row and haven't spoken to each other for years. If they were never reconciled, that relationship would be forever broken. There would come a time, if one died, when it would be too late to be reconciled. And the Christian message is not one of what Simon called self-becoming. It's a message of saving. Jesus the Savior died on the cross to reconcile an unholy, imperfect humanity with a holy, perfect God. Christianity is not a self-improvement program. It's about the urgent invitation to be reconciled with God before it's too late, before we are eternally separated from him. And we have a choice for the moment. The alternative is too horrible to contemplate, to be God-forsaken, because that's what we've chosen, to be God-forsaken forever. Now, a church which has lost this message of a saviour and a humanity needing rescue has clearly not understood the fear of the Lord. Is that why the Church of England has lost, according to Simon, 50% of its membership in 16 years? The world has judged that we have nothing different to say. But we do, if we understand the fear of the Lord. The second consequence, if the first is that we trivialize evangelism, if we don't understand the fear of the Lord, the second consequence is that we live to please people. We don't want to upset them by telling uncomfortable but biblical truths, especially if they're countercultural. Our primary motivation will not be to please God and to obey his word. What about this sober warning from Jesus? It's in Luke's Gospel. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Who has that authority? Shouldn't we fear him that we could be unreconciled for eternity? Archbishop Cranmer was instructed by Queen Mary to change his views or face the consequences. He replied, I fear God, not man. And he was burnt at the stake. Do we seek God's approval above all? Here's the third consequence. When the fear of God is lost, we relativize sin. An Indian Bible teacher, Zach Poonan, said, the first sign there is no fear of the Lord is sexual immorality. Abraham, in Genesis 20, 11, uh, was with his wife, Sarah, uh, but he pretends that his wife is his sister, and he justifies his lie 
on the grounds that there was no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Are we not a sexually immoral nation? Simon also said, where even the church blesses sin. What is the alternative way to live? Paul invites the Corinthian Christians to purify themselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. And here's the last one, almost ironic. If we don't fear the Lord, God becomes distant. If we do fear the Lord, it brings blessing and a sense of God's nearness. You remember our reading from Acts. At Pentecost, the church was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, and the church lived in the fear of the Lord, and they were encouraged by the Holy Spirit. And what happened next? It increased in numbers. It increased in numbers. Because there was a reverent fear for the Lord, The Holy Spirit, God's very presence, came among them and people wanted to be part of it because there was a reality. What do we see by contrast today? A lack of reverence, a lack of awe for God. A nation that's spiritually sick, a church that is weak and in decline. We need a spiritual revival. We desperately need a spiritual revival. A revival technically is where God by his spirit comes down on a people and transforms them. And the last one in the United Kingdom was in 1949 on the Isle of Lewis. Duncan Campbell, a godly preacher, had a sense that God was sending him to go there to minister. He arrived by boat. He was met on the quayside by the elders of the church. And they asked Campbell one question. One question. Do you fear God? I do fear God, he replied. That will do, said the elders. And a wonderful revival broke out that lasted three years. We desperately need a similar revival. I can't see it happening, though, until we fear the Lord. So will you pray for me that I fear the Lord? Will you pray for yourself that you fear the Lord in our daily lives? That we will fear the Lord, that our church and nation will do the same? Because unless we do, I don't know what the future will hold. Let us pray.